Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore stories of immigration, of career selection, of mental health, of identity, and uh, about what it means to be Taiwanese X. This is episode 15, and I'm super excited to welcome author Abigail Hing Wen to discuss her debut novel, Love Boat Taipei, as well as a couple other topics, including dating, working in the tech world, the bamboo and glass ceiling, and her writing process. I had a ton of fun talking with her, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Love Boat Taipei comes out to bookstores on January 7th, 2020, so go get your copies today. 然后用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。这是第十五集，我很高兴可以欢迎美国作家邢丽美今天来跟我们聊她新出版的一本小说，叫《Love Boat台北》这本小说的内容是讲一位要升大学的一个女生，她是在美国出生长大，然后父母想要把她送到这个美加营的爱之船暑假要到台湾玩。书上的女主角很喜欢跳舞，但是她父母不支持啊，然后要她
I mean, you got it. I I went on the program uh, my freshman year, at my freshman freshman summer out of college, and I had no idea what I was getting into. Since <laughs> uh, my parents, you know, didn't, weren't actually familiar with the Love Boat program, um, it was a really eye-opening experience for me. But the reason I ended up on the program was I was a presidential scholar in high school, and the Taiwanese government went through the list of all the major scholarships. So presidential scholars, Koch scholars, and Westinghouse, and everyone with a Chinese last name got this trip for free. So I showed up with, along with a bunch of other presidential scholars and thinking we were going to learn language and culture. And then lo and behold, it turns out to be the party of a, a lifetime. So I think I've had the story in me just for a long time. It's such a unique experience in the Asian American community. And it's really well known in certain circles, as you said, like almost everyone knows someone who went on Love Boat or went on Love Boat themselves and would have been it. <laughs> um, so I think I, I, since I, you know, I've been writing for 12 years and thinking about just different stories. And this was one, I think I didn't quite feel ready to tell it because it was such a unique and, and such a big experience. Um, but, you know, about three years ago, four years ago now, I started writing it in 2015. It took me three years to finish. And um, I, it's like really hard for me to believe it's coming out in just two and a half weeks. Yeah, it's so exciting. I couldn't put the book down. I basically sat with it the whole day and just read it until like basically midnight. And there are a lot of bits and pieces about her experience that I would just highlight for the listeners. But a lot of it was really relatable to me about like no dating in high school. And then you're you know getting in trouble when your parents found out that you were hanging out with boys, you know, not letting you join extracurriculars unless it was, you know, sanctioned for college applications, blanking out the kissing scenes on TV. Like all these things were just like so fascinating. I was like, oh, my God, that was like my childhood. <laughs> oh, I'm glad yeah. to hear that was relatable. Um yeah, I there was a girl actually on my Harper team, Jane Lee, who read it. She told me when I met her for the first time, she said I read it three times and I've never felt so seen before. And I almost cried because I like that's exactly how I felt when I won this love book program. And also, you know, when I went to Harvard and was in a community with a lot of other Asian Americans who just really saw me for who I was and, you know, not just the face on the outside or like, you know, whatever stereotypes that might come with that. So um, so the story is about a girl named Ever Wong. It took me a long time to actually figure out who the main character was going to be, but she is, as you mentioned, like she was with you know, fairly strict immigrant parents. She is going into a seven-year medical school program, but secretly wants to dance. And so the arc of the journey for her is figuring out her identity and all its facets, and not just in terms of who she is as someone between cultures, but also what it means to pursue her dreams and still honor her parents. You know, so I think going on a trip where she is suddenly on this free-for-all with, you know, no, no supervision, like she's able to really explore and test boundaries in a way that she's never been able to do before. And I think, you know, when, and just even now reflecting on like, what is the significance of a program like Love Boat, where a bunch of high school and college-age students are dropped off for the summer in a foreign country? Like, what does that mean for them? And I think, you know, the two big takeaways are one is solidifying your identity, um, as an Asian American, like similar to you, I was ashamed of being Asian American, grew up in Ohio, and I just really wanted to be um, more American and to prove that I was more American and going on Love Boat and meeting other Chinese American kids who were super excited about their culture and their heritage. Like that was really eye opening for me and, and super exciting. So, you know, learning about Dragon's Beard Candy and the Hutong and like even having Baltza in the 7-Eleven was like the coolest thing ever. And I I wanted to capture some of that. And I feel like when I meet other Love Boat alum, I see that same sense of groundedness. Like we know who we are um, and that is a strength now that we can bring to the table instead of coming to the table half a person and trying to hide a part of your identity. Okay. The second big takeaway, which I've only recently come to, is the rebellion part of Love Boat was actually really important. 
And this seems really counterintuitive because, you know, when I interviewed folks after I'd written the whole book, I, I ended up interviewing a number of people. You know, some people were very kind of secretive and like, oh, I don't want anyone to know that I went a love boat and all the rebellion that was associated with it. But I actually work, so I work in Silicon Valley. I, I was, you know, venture capital for a long time. And what we look for in startup companies is disruptive leaders, people who are going to turn an industry upside down, who are willing to challenge the status quo. And I also see that as an important element in corporate leadership. Like, I think there's a lot of questions right now around, like, why is it that not a lot of East Asian Americans have risen through the ranks in corporate America? You know, is it internal? Is it external? And it's probably a combination of both. And I think the internal piece of needing to be willing to push boundaries and, and rebel against hierarchies when they're not the right ones or, or when, you know, when authority is not making the right decisions, like, that's actually important to leadership in this you know, in, in the United States. And I feel like going on a love boat gave us all the opportunity to rebel and see other kids rebelling and realizing like, okay, there are consequences, but maybe they're not as bad as we think. So I actually think that we don't really know how that's going to play out yet, but I feel like that peace, that rebellion is going to be significant somehow. That's awesome because it goes very much against the upbringing, at least mm -hmm. for, I guess, a lot of immigrant kids. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Before you jump over to the career part, which I also want to talk about, within the book, uh, Love Boat Taipei, you touch a little bit on some mental health topics. So there's a little bit about depression, mm -hmm. codependency, you know, being seen and then like self-love, this discovery. Can you talk a little bit more about why you thought it was important to weave those into the storylines? So, yeah, there's a couple characters who struggle with different issues. And there is a character who we discover later on, actually, you know, on the outside seems like, you know, what is wrong with this person? And then you later you find out this person is struggling with depression. And I, I did want to talk about it. Um, it's one of those topics that even in America has only recently become something that we can talk openly about. Mm -hmm. I studied law and I remember we looked at the, we traced the history of case law where it used to be that if someone was being evaluated for insanity, they would say, oh, that person is in therapy. This, therefore, they, that means that they are not mentally stable. And then later the law changed where that actually became a proof point that the person was stable. This person is in therapy. Therefore, they must be okay. And, you know, and so that's, that there's been an evolution in American history. And I, you know, I think there's going to be an evolution in in the Asian American community as well, where it becomes less and less taboo to talk about mental health issues, but, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet. So it was important for me to show like, okay, it's okay. Like part of being human is having these different struggles and mental health is one of them. I think, especially when you come through an immigrant experience where there's been a lot of trauma, um, I think there's a lot that's, that is not talked about outside the home, mm -hmm. but is actually a really shared experience in many homes. And like, we should feel free to talk about them and not worry about stigma and like really be able to support each other to get through these things. So yeah, getting good counseling and the support of your community and having, even having it being understood, like, Hey, this, we shouldn't judge this person based on what we're seeing on the outside. Cause there's so much more going on underneath the surface. Yeah. I personally loved that there are, it's not just like everyone's perfect because oftentimes you get like the model minority myth and I guess like the outside picture is basically just very, you know, all-star student, blah, blah, blah. But there's all this undercurrent that no one else really, we don't talk about, as you said. So thank you for putting that out there. So I want to jump over a little bit to your career in writing. Obviously your academic and career achievements uh, would make most Asian parents very proud. But you also made some distinct career choices and transitions. And so how did you evaluate when it was time to transition? And how did you do so either rocking the boat or not rocking the boat? Or like how, like what sort of thought process did you go through when you decided that you maybe didn't want to become 
I don't know, the next judge and wanted to pursue venture capital. Um, and then now doing some writing. How did you bridge those differences? Right. So I would say there's probably a couple key points that I really look back as crossroads. And the first was after I clerked on the D.C. Circuit, I'd gone to law school, done the clerkship, um, and I, I was on a path to becoming a law professor, and I'd kind of done everything that would take me in that direction. I'd written an article, um, on, I'd, clerked, I'd um, served as an editor for the Columbia Law Review, and my article had won some national award and gotten read by five people probably. <laughs> um, and I was supposed to write another article while I was on maternity leave, and that was supposed to you know, kind of be the entry point into academia. And I just couldn't bring myself to write the article. I felt like nothing I could come up with in the legal realm would really move the needle for society at the time. And I, you know, I saw my other friends who were becoming law professors. They had a ton of legal articles swimming in their heads. And I just felt like, you know, it's not me. But I had this idea for a fantasy novel in my head. And my my husband was like, you know, you're really excited about this. Why don't you just go for it? So I did it while I was on bed rest, <laughs> pregnant with my second child. I started writing this fantasy novel and I loved it. That's and awesome. I then we shortly moved to California, and so instead of going back to law, I just stayed under the radar for three years, raising my child, um, both my children, and writing my novel. And I found critique partners, and I started going to conferences, and I started growing a community of fellow writers. And that was really a special time. Um, I ended up sending my novel to an agent, to a bunch of agents. One of them printed it out, marked it up, mailed it back to me, and said, "I really think there's something here." I, I, so I revised it, sent it back to her, and she turned it down. But 10 years later, she's now my agent today. And so, you know, I really feel like I came full circle on that one. Um, but that encouragement from her really kept me going. So I did end up going back to work as a lawyer because I felt like I hadn't completed my training and I was worried. I had young children at the time. If something happened to my husband, then I would be on my own supporting them and I needed some way to do that and support myself. So I did go back and that's probably the practical side of me. But while I was at the firm, I had been knowing that I was going back. I ended up finishing my second novel, sent it out, got an agent. And then while I was working at the firm, that book kind of went through the system and came close to that at a big publisher, but couldn't get through marketing. And shortly after that, I had the opportunity to go in-house uh, to venture capital. And so I was Intel Capital. And so this was actually another really big decision point for me. I felt like going in-house at the time, you know, it kind of meant you were stepping off the legal track. Although, you know, once I did go in-house, I realized like, wow, it's actually really great to be close to the business side of things. And I really enjoyed it. And I loved seeing the new technologies come through. But at the moment of the decision, I did feel like I was choosing to step off the treadmill to prioritize other things in my life, which was my children who were young and then the writing. And, you know, I think I did really struggle with that decision for a number of years. Like, you know, my career in the law wasn't as big as it might have been. And then when you're in-house as a lawyer, you know, your role is more, I think, a support function, which is great. And you're enabling these deals. Um, and But it, it kind of gave me the space that I needed to write. And I think the best thing about that particular group, and which is why I accepted the offer, was I really enjoyed the people I worked with, and there was no emotional stress. So when I came home from work, I left the work at work. And you had I, energy you know, to do other and things. And I felt like my team, my team had my back. Yeah. Um, so that, I, I was there for the past eight years. And about a year and a half ago, I connected with one of the artificial intelligence startup companies that we acquired for $400 million, Nirvana. And I started working with um, the co-founder of that group. And so I got really busy. But this actually all happened at the same time that my that Love Boat Taipei was going out to agents. And then I got an agent and I got a publisher. And so it was all happen happening simultaneously. And people were telling me, oh, you need to quit your job now because this book deal is, is awesome. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I totally agree. It's, it's been really amazing. But there was, like, something in my gut that couldn't really let go of the job because I actually really love my work in artificial intelligence. And I think it's 
an important part of our future, and we really do need diverse voices and creative voices in the space helping to shape the technology for the vulnerable and the people who don't have a voice. So I ended up staying, but what I did was I let go of, at the time I was splitting my role between three different functions at work, and so I let go of two of them. I let go of the legal and venture capital side, and I stayed with my internal team, which is doing similar things, incubating new technologies and artificial intelligence. And I've loved it. And, and my, my manager, who's also a Harvard alum, um, has been amazing and just really thinking ahead for me. He, you know, at one point he said to me, without me asking, he's like, you need to take Fridays off to write because it's important for you to be you know, fulfilled outside of work so that you can be happy at work. And just thinking ahead all the time, like and with my book launch, he's like, you got to go do this book launch, make sure it's successful. And awesome. like for all those reasons, like I'm still there. And I think, you know, I really credit him for just being really having a lot of foresight to think about like, okay, you know, this is a long game. And I'll be back after my book tour. So I'm still here. And I think I'm constantly trying to find the right balance. I have probably more decision points coming. But, you know, I I just feel really grateful to have a lot of wonderful people around me who give me great advice. And I think that there are times that you do have to kind of make a choice to take risks and, um, and then just keep moving forward. So incredible. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been a really long haul. <laughs> 12 years of writing and um, you know, there's definitely a lot of ups and downs along the way. So I'm, I'm really grateful to be here at this point and for all the support. So at what point during the 12 years did you decide to pursue your MFA? Your website mentioned that you did it while you were working and would take your vacation days to come to Vermont. That's right. I started writing in about seriously writing in 2007 when my child was born. And then I attended the program in 2013. So six years. Uh, and I, what I did is I went to a program that's a distance program. So you're only on campus for 20 days a year. And I used all my vacation time for that. It's like 10 days residency in January and 10 days residency in, in July. And the rest of the time, you work it out with your faculty, just exchanging material, you know, over email. And I was able to make it work with my job, especially since I'd gone in house to take a job that was less, you know, uh, less crazy <laughs> than being at a law firm. So I would write at night, 9 to 12, and then there would be times when I'd have to binge write. Like over a weekend, my husband would take the kids, and I would just write and try to focus on getting it, to pack it out for a deadline. And it was a really important decision, too, to go, to make that, to get that program because um, I felt like I hit a wall in terms of my craft, and I wasn't sure how I could grow. And doing the program definitely helped me to deepen my writing abilities and just my understanding of storytelling and how everything that goes into it. I'm so talented. I'm, I'm just like speechless right now. <laughs> So full disclosure, I work in tech. I worked in the Bay Area for a little bit. Now I'm working in Boston. And it doesn't always feel like the most diverse sector. I know that it's more diverse than it was 10 years ago. But what are your thoughts on the bamboo ceiling, the glass ceiling, you know, I guess like for women and minorities? Because it feels kind of real, but I think maybe sometimes it might also just be in our heads. Are there associations or conferences that you would recommend for folks on the boat to like either network or like how do you get yourself more visibility? Yeah, it's a really good question. So let's definitely unpack it. For example, so California is much more diverse than Boston, I would say, within the tech world. And this might just be purely based on my experience. The company that I'm at now, I am probably the only Asian, one of probably, I think maybe we're like 10% women. And if you look at the leadership, it's primarily white men, right? And right. You know, there's like probably this this whole pipeline problem. So like maybe in a couple of years we'll see more just more diversity at the leadership level. And there's always you know these women on boards by like twenty twenty percent women on boards by twenty twenty kind of thing. Right. 
what can we do to enhance each other? Yeah, I'm really grateful for this question. Uh, I've done a lot of thinking about this issue. You're right. There is not a lot of diversity in leadership at tech right now. And it's really important that the women stay in the game and continue to push forward. I think there's, I, I, and I don't think it's in your imagination. I've actually had a number of conversations with my Asian American girlfriends around the country and going on this tour now for Love What Taipei, more and more people are telling me their stories. So, and they're all the same. It's about Asian American women and, and other women of color realizing all at the same time that they're the least paid in the department or that they're not getting promoted or that they're really struggling to get promoted. And it's the same exact story over and over and over. And I think what happened was there's a number of internal and external reasons for this. I think that there is really truly some cultural elements of not recognizing that we can push against the hierarchy or not wanting not learning how to make your work known and, and like making sure people are aware that you're doing the work and that your name is put forward. Like it, I remember a woman at work told me that most of the conversations about your career will be made when you're not in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. So you need to have people around you who are going to back you and support you and speak up on your behalf. And it's sometimes hard to find those people, but it's really important to go somewhere where that where you can find that. And and then there's the reality of implicit bias. Like it's real. I've heard many people say things like that. I've had my own experiences with it. I was a leader at Harvard and you know, leading different groups. And I don't think I ever questioned that that was, no, I take that back. I, I did question that growing up, but I think, you know, college was really affirming, like, okay, I have these leadership abilities. And so it was really surprised me the first time I mentioned that to someone in the working world, okay, like, hey, I'm interested in managing. They said, you mean people? And they didn't really know me, but like their impression of me was that, of course, I would not be managing people. I would manage only projects, right? And so I think it's, an, it's a matter of educating people about like, okay, no, like leadership looks different. It's diverse and it, it's about different voices. It's about, you know, more than what, we, what we're seeing on TV. Like that's a, a training issue that we just need to continue to, to raise. And I think this is where we can help each other. I think with the experience with my Asian American girlfriends around the country, when we started realizing all at the same time, like, oh, look, we're all struggling with moving into leadership. A lot of them feeling like they're doing the work, but not getting the credit for it. So, for example, I met with some filmmakers in New York City, and they told me the same same story. They had done all the work for a particular Asian-American film. They were not invited into the picture. And, you know, instead their their male white colleague was invited into the picture, and nobody said anything, right? So I think right. the first thing we should do is speak up. And then the second is really just trying to leverage um, each other and to try to help, you know, encourage each other to, to talk about our, our skills and see what we can do to help. Thank you. What were some of your favorite books and authors growing up? Um, and were there any Asian American authors that made a particular impression on you? You wrote Fantasy first before Love Bo Taipei. I did. Yeah. So I loved Laura Ingalls. Oh, um, yes. The Rinkle Chronicles of Narnia, yeah. Harry Potter. They were, I would say, I read those types of those books over and over. I read the David Eddings series, which is a fantasy series. David Eddings, like the Belgaria, the Malorian. And I, you know, for a long time, because I didn't read any writers of color, I didn't actually think that I could be a writer. The only one we had was Amy Tan mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, and Maxine Hong Kingston. And I didn't resonate with their work as much. Uh, I, I mean, I really admire and respect what they've accomplished, but their experiences weren't mine. And so I didn't feel that same sense of connection and really just it felt like that's I think that's where the imposter syndrome comes in I, I don't you don't see people who are like you in you know, forging a path that you could take it's hard to imagine that for yourself but now you're here and you're inspiring the rest of us <sighs> so I think going 
HDSA really helped um, help me with that. I, I remember saying, telling someone I didn't know that an Asian American girl could be the main character of the story, and they really set me straight. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, what um, there was a faculty there, Uma Krishnashami, um, who said that she didn't think she could be a writer because the only writers she ever read were dead white male writers from England. So, you know, she thought, of course I can't be a writer. Um, yeah. So I'm grateful that we have increasing numbers of diverse authors that are just putting their work out and, and, and all the work is different. Like we have, we have to have many voices from the community because everyone has a different story. Um, and I think the more, the more voices we have, the more I think it will be normalized to see like, okay, like there's lots of stories. Everyone, and everyone, everyone has story-worthy things to talk about. And how do you find your critique partners? So, if do you look for people in the same genre or same experience, or how do you, or do you kind of get a panel of different folks? Yeah, it's really actually challenging to find people, the right people. I feel you know really lucky. I have critique partners that I've been working with for uh, since since two thousand eight. I met. I.W. Gregorio, Eileen Wong, at an SCPWI conference, and she was a urologist at Stanford finishing her residency at the time. And so we kind of connected over that, like, you know, pursuing these, like, pretty intense time-intensive careers. careers, but still wanting to write. And so we are still critique partners today, and I'm actually going to speak on a couple panels on mental health in literature with her over the next couple months. Oh, lovely. And, um, and I think, you know, I exchanged writing with a number of people throughout the years, and definitely the ones... You know, you learn something from everybody, but there are certain ones that just really have a good chemistry with, like they're teaching you something, you're teaching them something. And so I think those are the ones that I kind of still am with today. Writing is good for you. It takes a long time to find the right people where you understand what you're trying to do. It took me 12 years to get a deal, a deal, and the whole time, I was why are you guys still reading my work? Like, am I good? And, and they were really incredibly supportive. They continue to read my work me and through all the lows they had my back and that's why i'm here today you've met your literary agent and publisher with your first and second novel are there specific ones that you'd recommend for first time like asian american authors to reach out to or is it getting into the network of writing so yeah so finding an agent is also kind of like finding a spouse like you want to again <laughs> find someone who resonates with your work and will champion it and, and really gets what you're trying to do so even more so than critique partners um there are so many great resources i recommend publishers weekly query tracker and agent query although they i think they become less uh, in vogue these days and then finding your favorite authors and look in their acknowledgments because they'll always thank their agents and so that's a good way to find someone who might actually really like you or, or i'm sorry like your work I would say query widely. Go out to lots of agents and hear what everyone has to say about your work because that that's really useful. It helps you grow. It helps you see how your work is being perceived. And uh, and you never know actually. If my um, with the you know, certain agents, they're not actually necessarily looking for more of the same of what they have already because that would actually compete with the rest of their portfolio. So you might actually want to go to agents that may not actually represent a ton of writing like yours, um, and you know and see if they're interested. So it's it's not a science at all. It's really an art. Yeah. Oh, love it. All right. Let's talk about family a little bit. So you grew up on the East Coast in a diverse community. How is it different than like the Bay Area? So when I lived out in the Bay Area for a year, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? Like the food is so available. You, It's super diverse in the Bay Area, but you can also find very sizable communities for at least like Asian population um, for myself. 
and you know I have like Middle Eastern friends who had like their population as well. How do you think growing up in like West Virginia, Ohio, in like California has like shaped you into who you are now? I think the benefit of growing up in a place like Ohio, it's it's a really family friendly place. A lot of good solid values. Um, it's a very safe place. You could play on the streets and go for walks by ourselves as children, and all that was wonderful. It was definitely hard to be a minority there because there weren't very many of us at the time. And so, you know, maybe a different kid would have felt differently. I, I didn't like sticking out. I didn't like people noticing me, you know, looking at me at the mall and, or, you know, and there was definitely some encounters with racism too along the way. Um, but I think the benefit of being in Ohio is that I also have a really good sense of the country. Like I've, I feel like I've experienced a lot of different facets of it and, you know, being in the middle of the country and as well as on the coast has given me just a greater appreciation for the diversity of, of thought and, and people across the whole nation. I think it also helps me have a stronger sense of my identity because I was defined as the other for so long. It did force me to really confront questions of identity in a way that I think if I'd grown up in a, an environment with more people like me, I may not have thought about it as much. How do you answer when people are like, where are you from? You know, because you get that all the time. <laughs> yes, yes. So, you know, I've actually had a journey on this question. I I think I wrote about it, but it hasn't come out yet. Um, I used to be really uncomfortable with that question because I wanted to say, like, I was born in the United States. I'm, Amer- I'm just as American as you. And I think after I went back to visit, you know, my parents' countries, the Philippines, Indonesia, China, and Taiwan, I actually became more comfortable with that question because I'm like, you know what? I do have an interesting family background. Like we come from, we came from Asia and like, this is why my family left. Like my mom was, her parents had passed away and she was looking for a better life. Um, And my father left Indonesia because he needed to find a, again, a better life for his family that was struggling in Indonesia. Right. And it's like, these are cool stories that we all have as immigrants and we do come from somewhere. Like we're not sprung up in a vacuum. And I only realized how far I'd come in this journey when I asked the question myself of someone. I met someone, I said, oh, where are you from? And they, you know, they reacted the way I had reacted a long time ago. They're like, I'm from America. And, you know, it's like, that's not an appropriate question. And I thought, wow, that's where, that's exactly where I used to be. So I think my answer when people ask me where I'm from is exactly that. You know, I was born and raised in West Virginia and Ohio, and my parents are from the Philippines and Indonesia. You know, and I think, I, I think, realize like coming full circle on this made me realize a lot of times I think the question really is out of honest curiosity and interest and I think it's an opportunity to tell whatever story you want to tell about where you're from and I think everyone can have their own answer but definitely not something that needs to make me uncomfortable anymore the way it used to yeah I love hearing about people's family stories like where they've been and why generations above them decided to leave their homeland what is it like when you visit the Philippines and Indonesia? And did you guys speak Tagalog or Bahasa Indonesian at home? Or so my mom speaks Hokkien and my dad speaks Mandarin. And my mom speaks a little Mandarin because she, she learned it in school, but it's not her native language. But we primarily spoke English at home. When I go to other countries, it's similar. Like I speak uh, English. I think, you know, like back to your question about like, how do I answer the question of where I'm from? Mm-hmm. I think because I've traveled quite a bit in, in my adult life, I would often in other countries get that question, oh, where are you from? And my answer is the United States. And so I think maybe I just got more comfortable with it in general, yeah. like seeing like the bigger world and my place in it as, as a Chinese and American. And okay, so other question about is on dating. So if you're comfortable talking about it, 
Um, of course, yeah. The whole book is this <laughs> triangles. <laughs> so you met your husband through a love boat connection. Prior to that, like, did you date non-Asians before meeting your husband? And was it a conscious choice then to marry someone of a similar cultural background? Oh, I thought we were going to talk generally about We can talk about ever too. Or we can talk general, either way. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk about this. So it's, it's a really interesting question. No one's asked me this yet. But I do remember before I met my husband thinking like, okay, I'm really open to marrying anybody of any race. And so when I did decide to marry my husband, I also thought like, okay, I guess I'm marrying an Asian American guy. And, you know, it, so it did kind of factor into my thinking like, okay, that's like, who I was intended to marry. And I think it's good to get to a place where you know yourself before you jump into significant commitment and and not make choices based on running away from your heritage. Right. So I think, I think that's really more the key, like just being comfortable with yourself so that you can be comfortable in a relationship. Were there expectations by your parents to find someone like similar cultural background or anything where you like outside of knowing yourself, right? This is more of like a societal family expectations. Right, right. I think, so my sister's um, husband is Caucasian and their kids are Hapa. And she's probably the only one in our family, actually, that I think about it. Um, I hope she doesn't mind <laughs> me telling her. So I think she would be fine. She's, uh, she's actually a pastor's wife in Maine, in rural Maine. So it's a really different experience. Um, you know, I think my parents just would they thought they probably would have thought they feel more comfortable like with someone of their own culture but they actually really love love her husbands right and their whole family when we met them the whole family at our at her wedding I think what we were most struck by was how similar we were like just similar personalities similar senses of humor um and you know her husband has a lot of brothers and sisters too which you know we both come from large families and so I think that was really a really fun experience but I think definitely People, I think, are just afraid of what they don't know. Sometimes maybe over-index on the differences across race. And part of really what I wanted to write about Love Boat Taipei or wanted, wanted to show is, like, these are Asian-American characters, but they're really just like everybody else. They're yeah. inside. Like, they, they, make, they make stupid mistakes, and they bleed, and they laugh, and they cry, and they stab each other in the back, and they make up for it. And, like, all of it. All of it is being human and fallen and um, redeemed. And that's just, you know we're as diverse within the community as, as any other community. The book comes out January 7th. So definitely all pre-orders, hardcover pre-orders are really, really incredibly helpful. Um, and then, you know, just getting the word out in general after that, the whole first week is all, all really helpful. What I've heard from other places is that potentially Glove Boat Taipei would be made into a movie if we jumped up enough interest. I, I can't talk about the film side of things, mm -hmm. but what I can say is that to make a movie in Hollywood is very difficult, right? So there's many, many gates to go through. Um, and to, in order to get all the way to a green light, you know, we need to show a lot of support. And so I think having the book come out the gate well is really important to that goal. Yeah, because it'd be really cool to see more Asian Americans out in the public media space. And that is the hope. Like, I, as you know, like I have had 30 diverse Asian-American characters in the book. And my hope is that these 30 characters will be on the screen and be discovered into other roles around Hollywood, roles that may not necessarily be um, ethnic-specific, mm -hmm. but, you know, just really giving the opportunity to more Asian-American actors to be discovered. 
And what's next for you? Is there a book sequel we can expect? Do we find out what happens to the other characters in Love Boat Taipei? Yeah, so that's exactly what's going on. I'm working on the sequel now. It's This is a standalone book, um, but I am following the lives of two other characters. And it's all still in development in my head, and I'm starting to get it on the page. Um, but it's it's fun and exciting, and I, I love being reimmersed in the book world, uh, in this world again. I think there's been so much going on with the book promotion and it coming out that I've you know been really busy with all that. But whenever I get a chance to write on the sequel, I'm like, okay, this is I, this is where I feel at home, and I, I need to come back to this space. And what is your writing process? I don't write in order, and I think that's what surprises people the most. I and my one of my faculty advisors really kind of gave me permission to get comfortable living in the spaghetti and just not having anything solidified for a long time. And so what I'll do is I'll write key scenes as they come to me or like I'll have a glimpse or a flash of like this interaction between these two characters and I'll just write it down. And then eventually I'll go back and I'll reorder everything. I use a software program called Scrivener, which I swear by. It allows you to create like a bunch of tabs for different scenes and then I could just populate these pages with whatever information I think goes here and and then I am able to kind of hit create scenes for like the key plot points and the climax and the midpoint and and all that's helpful for me just to really kind of think about like okay what is what's significant about the story what are the key emotional moments and then I and then I can play around with it and then eventually pull it together into something that's cohesive and makes sense that's so fun do you think you'll ever run writing workshops um, so I'm actually teaching. Um, I'm on the faculty for Asilomar, which is a conference in SCBWI in California. I, I believe it's in March. Oh. So if anyone's in the area, you know, they're welcome to come by and I'll, I'll be there. It's like a three-day conference. And I'm actually bringing my older son along. He's gonna. He's also writing a novel. So it'll be an opportunity for him to get some craft and time to write in. That is so cool. Can you also do a little plug for the mental health conferences that you had mentioned earlier? Is that public? Yes, I'm actually speaking um, at ALA, American Library Association, with I.W. Gregorio. That's going to be, I don't I don't know that that one's open to the public. It's for librarians. Um, but she just texted me that there's another event. We're going to do a panel at Kepler's Bookstore in April. Um, and I'm actually, Kepler's Bookstore is where I'm holding my launch party on January 6th. So excited. So, I wish um, I could be in California for that. Yeah, it'll be fun. And, you know, for, for your listeners from other parts of the country, um, I have a my tour sheet is public now, so it's on my website at abigailhingwen.com, and I'll be visiting a bunch of cities: so San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Denver, Seattle, Portland, New York, DC, and then there's you know more cities being. I'll be in Philadelphia for a bit too, so there's definitely more and more cities being added, and then I'll be out in London um, in July. Awesome! I hope you guys are able to squeeze in a Boston stop, and if not, we'll try to catch you on other parts of the East Coast. What's the yeah, best? Yeah, I would love to yeah. come to Boston. What is the best way to follow you, your social media handles and website, if you want to spell it out for everyone? Yeah, it's uh, my, my name, Abigail Hingwen, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Well, Abigail, thank you so much for this chat. I hope to meet you in person, and maybe we can talk again soon. Congratulations on your book. Everyone should go out and buy a copy and read it. It's really, really fun. And thank you for being an inspiration to us. You're like superwoman, a working mom, plus an author, and doing really exciting stuff in the tech world. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I was super excited to chat with you and really appreciate all the thoughtful questions. So let me know if you're ever out in the Bay Area, and I hope we get a chance to meet in person at one of these events. Yeah, me too. All right, hope to talk to you soon again, Abigail. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and 
And that's it for today. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. Or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. All right, see you next time.